0: Good morning, everyone. I have to say this is a little extraordinary because I was planning on and, and counting on my family being here this morning. And I do have part of my family, thank goodness. But I am, I am missing. I'm missing my church family. So welcome to everyone who's at home watching. Uh, we have a lot to cover today. Um, If you haven't been joining us yet, our church, Bridge Church, is going through the journey this year, and what that means is we're reading the whole Bible as one big story for the whole year. Uh, We just finished up Numbers at the beginning of the week, and we've been reading through Deuteronomy, which is the last book of the Torah, uh, the last book which Moses wrote, and we're here Deuteronomy is basically a series of sermons given by Moses before he died. This is right before the Israelites were about to enter uh, the promised land. Uh, There's so much good material here. And so when I was tasked uh, with deciding what to talk about this Sunday, um, I centered on the Shema, which is in chapter 6. And that's where we'll be uh, focusing today for the majority of our time. Shema means to hear, to listen, to obey, O Israel. It's a Jewish confession of faith, still recited by many Jews uh, twice daily. This passage that we're going to be reading, and I'll I'll read for you here because we don't have slides today, is basically a compact description of what it means to know God. Not to know about God, but to know God. And I have to be just transparent with you on this, and it happens every time, and I'm sure it happens to anyone who's diligently studying before they preach. This, uh, this passage really wrecked me this week. I, uh, I was torn because I, I was forced to look at my own life in comparison to, to what chapter 6, verses 4 through 23 were talking about. Do I know God? So, before we dive in, I just want to let you know that some of these points and aspects may not reflect where you are currently in your relationship with God, or like right now, but at some point, if you're following after God, if, if you're chasing after Him, He's going to call you to something deeper. He's going to want you to know Him, the real Him. So, I just wanted to say that before we started. So, let's go ahead and, uh, and pray. And then I'll start by reading Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 through 23. Okay. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you so much for the opportunity to stand here. Even though we're not in a church building or uh, we're not meeting together corporately, per se, in a physical place, that's okay because church isn't defined by four walls. Church isn't defined by where we meet. Church is defined by the people. We're going to talk about that today, Lord, and I thank you. Thank you for reminding me of that. I thank you for showing me that even though uh, there is calamity and fear all around us, we can still be a beacon of light to show other people around us we serve an awesome God. So I ask, Lord, you get me out of the way today. Speak directly through, through me, through the technology that we're using, and directly into the hearts and minds Of those who are listening. In your name we pray, amen. Okay, Deuteronomy 6, starting in verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. And shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to give to you with great and good cities that you did not build and houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and all the trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. Verse 14. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you, for the Lord your God In your midst is a jealous God, lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you and he destroy you from off the face of the earth. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you have tested him at Massa. You shall diligently keep the commands of the Lord your God and his testimonies and his statutes, which he has commanded you. And you shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord, that it may, may go well with you and that you may go in and take possession of the good land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers by thrusting out all your enemies from before you, as the Lord had promised. Verse 20. When your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and statutes and the rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? Then you shall say to your son, We were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out For with a mighty hand, and the Lord showed signs and wonders great and grievous against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household before our eyes. And he brought us up out of there that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give our fathers. Okay. There's a lot there. And when I was prayerfully considering what points to give, I came up with four aspects based on this passage of what it means to know God. So I'm, we don't, like I said, we don't have slides, so I'm going to do my best to make sure as, if you're taking notes and stuff like that, that I point out what the points are. So first point, to know God, you must believe in God truly. Verse 6 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. The dominant belief at the time was that there were many gods depending on the country and region that you were in. God warned the Israelites in verse 14 and 15 against following after these false gods. Now, fast forward to today, modern times, and the dominant belief is that there are still many gods, but now it's depending on the individual. Everyone has the right to believe in God as it is meaningful to you. Here, God is saying, no, there's only one real God, and it's me. You don't get to construct me, I construct you. Not many of, there's not many of me depending on you. There's only one of me, and you depend on me. I am as real as gravity, as death whether you believe in me or not. So if you want to know me, he is saying, you must know me as I really am, as I reveal myself to be in Scripture. You can't just make up who you want me to be. Now, for some people, that may sound narrow. But let me ask you this, and I'm going to put it this way. Is there only one you? What if someone were to come up to you and say, I'm writing a book about you. Oh, you said, what's in it? Well, you're a pilot who absolutely loves science and is a cat lover. Oh, you said, well, I am scared of heights. I became an accountant because I love math, and I really uh, like dogs because I have allergies and they have to be hypoallergenic. And they say, well, Nah, that's okay, I'm going to write this anyways. How would that make you feel? You'd probably be rightfully a little bit upset because there's a reality there that needs to be honored. There's a truth. You can only come to know God if you discover Him, not if you create Him. Now, is that still too narrow for, for you? Well, let me inform you of an ironic truth. Ironically, our hearts desperately need a God we didn't create. And I'll tell you why. Because at some point in your life, you're going to feel worthless. How can a God you invented come and tell you you're wrong, you're valued, I love you? At some point in your life, you're going to feel guilty. How can a God you know you made up come and say, no, you're pardoned? The deepest need of our heart is for a God you didn't invent or I didn't invent, but we discovered. So the first point, again, to know God is to is you must believe in him truly. Now, on to our second point. Secondly, to know God, you must love God transformatively. Now, what does transformative mean? Transformative means to cause an important and lasting change in someone. So to love God transformatively means you love him to the point where you allow him to change you, a lasting change. So what does that look like? In verses 5 through 6, it says here, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Some translations may say strength. And these words that I command you today shall be upon your heart. Here Moses was presenting Yahweh as the one true God who requires complete devotion. So for us modern people today, using the word love as we do in today's times may seem a little weird. How can you command someone to love? Is is love not a feeling? Well, in Old Testament times, the heart was not considered the center of emotional life. Matter of fact, they didn't even have a word for mind. Rather, to be upon the heart was translated to be in one's constant conscious reflection. So how do we do that? It shows us in the following verses. Take a look the following verses, it says, you do this in your house and along the road. That means private and public life. On the head and on the hand. That means what you think inside and how you act outside. When you go to bed and when you get up, that means your entire waking life. On the doorposts of your home, that means to apply it to your family. And on the city gates means to apply it to your culture or apply it to your society. It means you will love God in your whole life, not just on the weekends, not just in your private life, but not your public life, not just with this person and not with this person. We should all strive to ask this constantly. How does who God is and what God says affect this? How does who God is and what God says affects this. How I think here, how I act here, how I live here, everything. You want every single nook and cranny of your life to be transformed by the love of God. However, that's not all it says. We've been talking so far about your personal walk individually. If you notice God's commands, it says, Hear and love me, O Israel. God is not just calling us as an individual to love Him. He's calling individuals who love Him to form a community that loves Him. One thing I love about this church is that we're a community. And and we want to bring people into that. And there's, there's a parallel verse in Deuteronomy 10. I'll read it to you. It says, for the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Therefore, you love the sojourner, and for you were once sojourners in the land of Egypt. Now, sojourners is a word we don't uh, use too often nowadays. It can be also used as foreigner or alien. So it's not, enough just, it's not enough just to bring the love of God into your personal life. It also has to permeate your understanding of society and the culture around you. God here is saying, I don't want the slightest whiff of partiality in the community that loves me. Or you've forgotten that you were once foreigners and that I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And as a follower of Christ, if you do have partiality, which is prejudice, or you do discriminate on the basis of nation, race, culture, you haven't experienced the grace of God. Either you haven't experienced it, or you don't understand it, or you haven't thought it out thoroughly in your life. Because once you've experienced God's grace in your life, and you recognize that, you won't hold a superior view of yourself in comparison to others. Philippians 2 says, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own needs, but also to the interests of others. The truth is, wherever you are today, whatever you've obtained, it's a gift of God. Allowing God's love to transform you both individually and communally happens as you learn to share God's gifts relationally. And one more point before moving on to my next point. If you look back in the passage, we get a great example of how to accomplish this. In verse 6 and 7, God says to not only to impress these commands on the heart, but to talk about them when you're on the road or when you're in the house, talk about them. What does that require? Community. <laughs> it means making yourself available to others while trying to work out what it means to live your life in accordance to what God says. You know, what does, God, what, what, does what God say uh, mean in the way in which I use my money? What does God, what God says mean in the way I view relationships or how I treat my family? or how I relate to others. I'm not talking about, and don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that just coming to church, listening to the sermon, taking notes is wrong. That's not what I'm saying. Please don't misunderstand me. But that's learning. You're just, you're just learning. And it's great to learn. I get it. We all need wisdom and knowledge. But at some point, if you want to grow, that requires talking, sharing, sharing, uh, our struggles, rejoicing together, asking questions, building relationship. And you know a great place to do that in Bridge Church is community groups. We have some awesome community groups and we want to build more. We want to work out with others who are trying to follow after Christ or maybe have questions about what that means or what that looks like. We want to work it out amongst each other. Coming to church is important, and it is what we're supposed to do so we can love God and and worship Him communally, corporately. But working it out with each other is where we grow. So that's point number two. Point number three. So thirdly, to know God, you must trust God unconditionally. This one's a very difficult one for me. Verse 16 says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you have tested him at Massa. Now, we've already read through the book of Exodus. I'm going to reference that here because of what he's talking about. We want to just definitely make sure everybody understands this. In Exodus 17, he says, therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, why do you quarrel, quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? And the Lord said, behold, I will stand before you there on the rock of, at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel, and he called the name of the place Massa because of the quarreling of the people of Israel and because they tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? The Israelites were basically saying, We'll follow God as long as he proves to us that he's worthy of being followed. But in this case, by making sure we have some water. In those times, in the Old Testament times, to test meant to consider a party guilty until proven innocent. Therefore, what they were doing, according to the passage, was testing the Lord by basically saying, I'll follow you as long as, and we do this today, I'll follow you as long as my life is going the way it ought to go. I'll follow you as long as you, or you explain to me, and I get an explanation of all the answers of my questions. Here's the problem, there are times when we find ourselves in the wilderness of our lives, we have health problems, we, uh, we have huge disappointments in our career or relationships, or uh, things fail or we, things aren't going well. So when things are going terribly in our lives, we may find ourselves starting to talk like this. I know I'm guilty of this as I struggle with it. What is God doing? I say, everything is going wrong. I'm going to follow him when he starts to make things go right. This is testing God, and let me tell you why that doesn't work. In northern Wales, there are farms all over the place, and most of them have sheep. And there's a season of the year where the shepherd has to do something kind of, kind of awful, kind of harsh to the sheep, uh, to where um, they have to completely submerge them in a vat of uh, antiseptic. And if they don't do this, the sheep will literally die of being eaten by parasites and insects. So they have to submerge them underwater for a few seconds, you know, eyes, ears, nose, their whole, whole body. So, and you can see them as they're led up into the vat one at a time. They start to struggle to get out. And uh, as their lord and master is pushing them under for a few seconds, as far as I could tell, they're, they're drowning. And you can see their panicky little eyes coming, coming up uh, over the vat, asking, what is God doing? Now, I've seen this look in our dog. <laughs> we have a triune God. You know, uh, Bella has a biune God, uh, Jen and I. And uh, she really doesn't like water. Like, she doesn't like even going outside, go to the bathroom if it's raining, (laughs) let alone trying to give her a bath. (laughs) Um, I think my daughters do a much better job than we do, but, like, when I give her a bath, sometimes you can see her looking up at me, trembling, going, what are you doing? What is God doing? Think with me for a moment. There are times in our lives or in my life, where I didn't have a hint of an explanation for why my Lord and shepherd, whom I trust, was allowing me to go through something that felt like drowning. The shepherd has to do this, or they'll die, the sheep will die. There's no way in the world... The shepherd could possibly give the sheep an explanation or give them any comfort or assurance. So, in this outcome, there's, or there's, in this example, there's really only two outcomes one, the sheep could die, or two, the sheep could trust their shepherd unconditionally without explanation. There's this gap in intelligence between the sheep and us. And there's an infinitely greater gap between the intelligence of us and God. Here's the great thing, though. All is not lost, however, because if you're able to turn the corner, if you're able to get to a place in your walk with God where you start to say, I really don't understand what's going on here, but... I know my great shepherd. He cares for me. This is not punishment. Then there's a calm in that place. You're drowning, but there's a peace. There's a calm there. And how do you get this trust? My last and final point, point number four. You must tell God's story. In verse 20, a son asks his father, Dad... I see you obeying God's commands, I see you trusting God unconditionally, I see you loving God transformatively, but why should I? Why should I? In general, what I have seen when a child asks why is, uh, like, why should I go to church, or why should I read my Bible, or why should I find my identity in Jesus? Many parents go right to verse 24, which we didn't read 24, but... But to sum it up, Jesus, I'm sorry, uh, uh, God is saying here, um, because I commanded it. So you hear things like, well, the parents might say, because God said so, or because he's God, or because I said so. So basically, when, you, when the child asks, why should I obey these commands, they get another command. Or why should I obey these principles, they get another principle. Don't get me wrong, guys, there's truth in that, okay? And you may get compliance in the short run, but in the long run, that answer will not satisfy a child's heart. And if you're honest with yourself, that answer will not satisfy your heart in the long run. Here's what's wonderful. If we read the following verses, 20 through 23, the initial answer is not a command or a principle, it's a story. He tells his son the story of the gospel. This is what the Father is supposed to say. Now, allow me at this point to interject an important foundational aspect. I have had the privilege of spending time with many teenagers and students over the years. And there is one frequently asked question that I get from parents constantly. And and to sum all of them up, it's basically, how can I get my son or daughter to love God more? And they may say, like, how do I get my son or daughter to read the Bible more or learn to pray or uh, learn to have a relationship with Jesus? So I'm going to take a moment to stand on the soapbox here and just tell you from the heart, there are two extremely important conditions as parents that must be met to allow this type of conversation to happen within your family. And I'm talking about the example in verse 20. First, make it a safe environment to discuss tough topics. I cannot stress to you how important this is. There are many times that I have seen parents or been present as a child asks why, and before they get to ever explain themselves, it's, nope, uh, I'm not going to listen to this or I'm not ready to talk about this or whatever. And, And the problem with that is, that you're going to get this type of relationship where the child says, I can only come to you in these things. And that's not what you want. Um, as the child grows older and becomes a teenager, a young adult, they're going to need to, to, you're going to have to teach them how to form their own opinions and their own ideas and their, uh, their own way of doing things, and that's good. Now now understand this as, as you would need to validate some of their opinions, thoughts, and, and, and things like that. That doesn't mean I'm saying they're right. Please don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying you need to bow to whatever their demands are. I'm not saying that you need to just uh, go with the flow and be their friend and say, oh, whatever you want. No, 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 no. But they need to be able to be heard. That's one condition. The second condition, equally as important. As a parent, You must be displaying this in your own life. Your own walk with God is vital to establishing open communication with your child. Now, let me hit the fathers right between the eyes. Ultimately, your responsibility here is to make sure that you're doing this even if no one else in your home is. I'm sorry, (laughs) I'm not gonna sugarcoat it. When we get up there, we're responsible for our family. And uh, that is one area I've seen a few examples where that wasn't taken seriously. You need to find teachable moments from your own experiences and struggles. They need to see you fight. And I'm not talking about fighting with each other. I'm talking about fighting against pride by offering humility. Mom, fighting against temptation by seeking uh, supernatural strength. Dad, fight against fear by asking for wisdom. Show them how to do that. Speaking of which, we have some amazing students and children within the family of Bridge Church. It is an honor to serve with our church community and love on these kids. I encourage you, if you haven't started to volunteer in either children's ministry or student ministry, I encourage you, pray and ask if there is something that you have or an experience you've gone through or something that God is pulling you to spend time with the younger generation. You want to be part of something that's going to be amazing and honestly, for the future of bridge is foundational. So, I'll get off my soapbox. (laughs) Back to the passage. The father here tells his son... The story of the gospel. The gospel, meaning the story of God coming into history and saving us by grace. Now, the version of the story the Father tells is the only version they had at the time, which was the Exodus. Now, the Exodus was the uh, just so we're all on the same page, the Israelites were in slavery. God broke into history with the ten plagues. The ten plagues, according to the verse, were terrible judgments of God coming down on human sin. Now, here's the question: How did the Israelites get out? Because they were human. And they were sinful, just as anybody else. And the answer, the blood of the lamb. Before the law went on the doorposts, the blood went on the doorposts. Before the law went on the doorposts, the blood went on the doorposts. The night of Passover, they slew a lamb, put the blood across the doorposts so that um, so that the judgment of God passed over them. Why should we obey the law? The answer isn't we obey because otherwise God will get us, or otherwise, so God will take us to heaven, or God will bless us. The answer is God blessed us, and therefore we obey. The answer is God saved us, therefore we obey. We obey out of love and gratitude. Because he chose us out of grace. Ultimately, we know the Lamb was just a symbol. The Lamb's blood was just a symbol of what was yet to come. And and for many of us, we understand uh, what John the Baptist knew when he said, uh, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus was the one that ultimately took our sins and absorbed the death. God himself came in the form of Jesus. God himself took the blunt, took the death. That's how you know you can trust him unconditionally. It may work for a while to tell your heart, you have to trust him because he's God and you're just a sheep. But at some point, you must acknowledge that the the shepherd became a sheep and became vulnerable for you and me. So, In conclusion, you've got to find a way to tell the story of the gospel to your heart. Otherwise, you won't believe in God truly, love God transformatively, or trust Him unconditionally. I mean, that's how we're supposed to tell other people anyways, right? I mean, that's the reason you don't tell people you just need to do the right thing and be a good person without telling them the gospel. And if they don't understand the gospel, don't wail on people if they're not living the right way. Instead, tell them about Jesus. Now, everybody has different ways of reminding themselves of the gospel story. So let me tell you and finish with a story that inspired me about Kathy Keller. Kathy, uh, years ago, used to write and create children's books. curriculum, and uh, one time when she was reviewing the story of Noah and the ark, um, and we, we should know that story, but at the end of that story, we know that, that God says he will never judge the world in that way again, uh, and, and uh, the symbol of that is a rainbow in the sky. Well, Kathy realized in, in doing her research that the, the word bow, rainbow, was actually just the word bow in Hebrew. And uh, the same thing as a war bow. Now, the symbol of the rainbow being in the sky was actually a figure of the, the bow being hung up on the wall. And uh, it's a sign of peace. And, and basically, the rainbow is a sign of, then a reminder of God's covenant to restore his fellowship with man, ultimately bringing man back to himself. And this touched Kathy. Years later, as Kathy had to struggle with various physical ailments and diseases, um, to remind herself of the story of the gospel, she hung prisms and crystals in her bedroom window. And um, between the hours of three and five, as the sun hit it just right, the uh, the sunlight would just display dancing rainbows all over the room, everywhere. If Sometimes dozens of them, dozens of them. And when she needed to, when it was tough. And when she didn't feel well, and she said, what is God doing? She would go in there, and she would sit, and she would look at these rainbows, and she would realize, this is not punishment that I'm going through. She would hear God say, I took the punishment for you. I love you. You've got to find ways of nailing the gospel on the doorway of your life and telling the story to your heart so you can love God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might and trust him unconditionally. Let's pray. Lord, I cannot thank you enough for the fact that as we read through the overarching story of the Bible, there are signs and examples of your love throughout everything. We see that you are constantly reaching out to us, that you want us to get to know you, and that you've given us Scripture so that we can pursue you because you first pursued us. Lord, right now I ask if anyone who's listening to this doesn't have that relationship with you, if they don't know what your son did for us, bring it to their heart that they need to do something about that. And they need to ask that Jesus come and save them and forgives them of their sin. And therefore, they get to know you and love you transformatively. Finally, Lord, I do want to pray that we all remember Jeremiah 29 in this time of trouble. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not calamity, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. Amen.